sometimes when we get this far into a retreat, it can seem like uh, there are only hindrances. And it's really good to remind ourselves that the practice, even the word practice, isn't it interesting how we hear that word? And don't we usually or often immediately associate the word practice with seeing what's wrong with the mind, trying to be skillful at preventing unwholesome states or abandoning unwholesome states. And of course, all that's really important. And uh, we do talk about the hindrances, how to recognize them, how to skillfully free the mind, not basically by not feeding the hindrances as Deborah mentioned last night. But there's this whole other part of practice which is having the confidence, I think that's a good way to begin. I'm I'm finding that really helpful for myself. Having the confidence that there are these wholesome qualities or wholesome potentials of the heart, of the mind. And our job as a practitioner is to see them and to grow them, to develop and maintain those beautiful wholesome qualities. And there are different Uh, maps that the Buddha used, a couple of the well-known ones like the seven factors of awakening. But the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abodes of what usually translated as metta, translated as loving kindness, but you could say, you know, the goodness of the heart, the goodwill of the heart, and compassion, karuna, and appreciative joy, mudita, equanimity, pekka, so these, this is another set of beautiful qualities. And in a way, they're even more apparent and um, or more accessible and more immediately liberating than the qualities of the seven factors. And I think not just at the beginning of practice, but especially at the beginning of practice, they help us develop confidence in the path because probably we all already have, and if we haven't, we certainly could experience the liberation of the mind that the Buddha talks about in just a moment, not a permanent freedom, but a temporary liberation of our heart and mind. Whenever our mind is deeply established in goodwill, kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, In that moment, in those moments, this is a mind, this is a heart unafflicted by greed, anger, and delusion. So if we have the wherewithal to be interested, to really taste that moment, the quality of the mind, the quality of the heart in that moment, we get a sense of what the mind is or what the heart is or what this is when greed, anger, and delusion aren't operating, aren't afflicting the mind. I did a retreat recently with Bhikkhu Analio, a well-known German monk and Buddhist author and scholar. And uh, I lost my point. He said a lot of interesting things. (laughs) I'll come back to it, I'm sure. (laughs) 
But what I wanted to share now, just in terms of how simple these beautiful qualities can be, because as I mentioned, confidence is one of the uh, missing pieces for some of us, that as we've developed the practice, we've become more sensitive. And then with, with the sensitivity, what do we see? Well, we see restlessness. We see sleepiness. We see irritation and aversion and fear and maybe even stronger states of hatred and terror. And we see greed and lust and, you know, if only, then I'd be happy. So we see a lot of that. But let's now, if we haven't already begun, let's now be just as interested in recognizing the wholesome qualities, even very simple. And this is a short passage from Gwendolyn Brooks, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning African-American poet from about 50 years ago, maybe even a little more. And, uh, and she wrote, I guess, just one novel, Maud Martha, it's called. And this is a passage from that book. She writes, go home to your children, she urged, to your wife or husband. She opened the trap, the mouse vanished. Suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanness in her. A wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power and it had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed. In the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled, why, I'm good. I'm good. She ironed her aprons. Her back was straight. Her eyes were mild and soft with a godlike loving kindness. And maybe you, just in hearing that passage, remember times, too, where you did something good and you noticed it. That's the important thing. <laughs> you know, we, we actually recognize the capacity of our mind, heart, to be good. This is so poignant to me because uh, a couple years ago, Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, we brought a, a farm out in western Wisconsin, not too far out of Minneapolis and St. Paul for, to slowly develop into a retreat property. And I immediately, like a month or so after we purchased it, I did a two week or so retreat out there. And somehow there got to be a lot of mice in the building. And uh, so we had these live traps um, you put a little peanut butter in and it, and then, uh, but they'd go off. I think in that two week or so period of time, I caught 23 mice. So there are a lot and, uh, and they'd be getting in the trap all the time. And then, uh, it's, uh, scary for them and probably not good for them to be in the trap. It doesn't hurt them, but just them struggling to get out is not good for them. So I'm a pretty light sleeper, so I'd hear them in the trap, I'd get up, and then you'd have to walk pretty far, otherwise they'd come right back in. <laughs> so in the middle of the night, <laughs> my flashlight in the middle of nowhere, you know, I'd walk towards the woods through the open fields, which is itself sort of an interesting thing. But it always felt good. And I never, you know, initially, you know, it might be a little awe, because you'd hear the, the trap. You know, it's just one of those seesaw things, and it tips, and then the door closes on it. And you can just hear a little click. And, but then it was like, I just remember there's a mouse in that trap and it doesn't want to be there. You know, it's not happy. 
and it probably doesn't want to be outside either. But <laughs> <laughs> these are the sometimes terrible compromises we make. <laughs> but um, it'd be really important in the next few days to see in, very, in these very simple ways, if you can see how transforming, it's not so much, what's transforming isn't so much being good as much as it is recognizing that the heart is good, capable of being good. And it just, in a sense, draws the mind in that that's the possibility. Maybe that's the way. Instead of trusting aversion and fear and irritation to protect us, to lead to something good. I mean, why else are we irritated so much of the time or averse or afraid so much of the time? Or even worse, why is it that we project our fear, our judgment, our anger on others? We somehow feel like they need it to change, right? It's like in my relationship with my wife, I'll get irritated sometimes. And uh, and when I look, and now I'm getting better at looking, noticing with awareness, and I'll see this sort of deluded notion that somehow the situation demands my irritation. Like it's it's the universe correcting something. It's not me, it's impersonal. (laughs) The universe correcting what's off. And thank goodness (laughs) that I have this kind of critical, irritated mind (laughs) to sort of have its effect. But when we look, we can more honestly start to see it never helps. Aversion, fear, irritation. It's totally understandable in terms of the lawfulness of things, why we might be averse, why we might be impatient or irritated. But when we look, we see it's not productive, it's not useful, It doesn't lead to something good. And that's really good to see. And then to notice the opposite moments where the heart is benevolent and kind and receptive and understanding and patient and forgiving and appreciating what's good, sensing what's good, not fixating on what's bad. And you see not only does it immediately feel good to be relating in that way, but it has this transformative effect on our heart, but also in ripples out into the world. It's a positive contribution to the world around us. So most of you know, but just to review quickly, so the, the basic quality the Buddha pointed to, metta, which gets translated in different ways, but it's really that basic capacity for friendliness, the capacity to include, to be close, to accept. And it has a feeling of generosity. There's, the more we feel it and study it with awareness, the more we see it has this expansive quality, this radiant quality. It, it wants to include. So if you're trying to include, that's not metta, that's trying to be good. Maybe because we want somebody to think that we're good or we're afraid of somebody thinking that we're not good. But more what metta is, is when we notice 
that the heart is willing to include, willing to be close, willing to allow, to accept, no matter what it is, right? So we have metta. And then these other three qualities that are the other three of the four Brahma-Vihara's divine abodes, they're really expressions of that basic goodness in particular situations. So karuna, compassion, is that quality when that wise, kind heart meets suffering, then it's expressed as karuna or compassion. When it meets goodness or happiness, then there's that appreciative joy, mudita. And when, you know, and it's partly, equanimity is partly the background, but it's especially evident when the situation, the moment's confusing or ambiguous, unclear. And then what does love and wisdom look like in that moment? How does love and wisdom relate when the situation is ambiguous and uncertain? Well, with equanimity, like it's okay that I don't know. It's okay that I don't know what to do next. It's okay that it's confusing. I know equanimity in a sense knows how to be close or knows how to include that too, but that's okay that it's confusing. And uh, as you're beginning to notice, I'm sure there are things that look like metta, but we call it the near enemy. So anything that where we have an agenda or an attachment. It might look like we care, but there's an agenda. We expect something back. We expect that our caring, our kindness will have some um, positive effect. But that, and that might be like relatively good, but real metta is a free offering and it doesn't depend on anything coming back or even anybody noticing. Have you ever noticed like when you have a lot of metta, you're out in the woods, let's say, or taking a walk and you have a lot of metta and then it's like you feel you have to connect with somebody or tell somebody to sort of make it real. Like it's not real if it isn't sort of directly hitting somebody so that they can then, oh boy, you're in a good place you know, acknowledge that we're good in some way. Which is why it's really nice to do it on a silent retreat, you know, the sort of stealth love, where we can just, you know, and we don't sort of try to look a particular way. You can even sort of have a very subdued affect that you might have the most radiant, generous, loving heart in the bunch. We wouldn't know. Because the projection, the radiance is for its own sake. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a positive effect on others, but you're not doing it. You're doing it because it's good to do on its own. And that it has ripple effects out in the world is like icing on the cake. It's great that our goodness, when developed, when expressed, has all these positive ripples in our relationships. It's really wonderful. But the healing power of these four qualities of the mind are, that's what draws us in. It's interesting, uh, Venerable Analeo, this uh, German monk, 
he likens these four to kind of qualities of the sun and moon. And he says, um, and maybe this is a little technical, but you know, the sun itself is a kind of implosion that also has a radiance, right? I don't know much about fusion, but that's what's happening on the sun, right? It's this, you know, molecular activity or atomic activity, and there's an implosion, and then this amazing radiance that we feel some over many millions of miles away. And that's the same thing with metta. It really feels, we can feel it, right? It's here at the core of our being. Whatever that is that we feel, it's right at our core. It's sort of an inner experience that we feel, and yet its nature is to express itself outward in all directions. And so it's interesting that a lot of people, you know, who come to retreats, take up this uh, insight meditation practice, Vipassana practice, you know, it's, you can almost divide the group. Half of the people are so really like metta practice, and the other half, you know, they take it, it's medicine, but they don't really like it. They don't gravitate toward it. They might not even trust it. And this is a f- funny passage from uh, Ajahn Sumedho. When he first came to England, he asked people, do you practice metta? And they said, oh, I can't stand it. <laughs> so I asked, well, what do you think it is? And they said, well, it's that smarmy whitewashing of your mind. Now, I didn't really know what smarmy meant, so I looked it up. Ingratiating, wheedling in a way that is perceived as insincere or excessive. Right? So it's that smarmy whitewashing of your mind where you say you love absolutely everything. You're supposed to try to convince yourself that you love your enemies and that you love yourself. Can you imagine spending an hour just thinking about how you love yourself? <laughs> I realized they didn't really understand metta. <laughs> metta is not an idealistic state of mind. Metta does not necessarily mean liking anything at all. It means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside oneself. Now with metta, one isn't blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead, one is witnessing the unpleasant in a situation, thing, person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. Right? So that's that including or being intimate, you could even say. He goes on and says, you simply stop the mind from thinking, I hate it, I don't want it. That's what I consider to be metta. And so in the early teachings, you know, the Buddha was really interested in this universal radiance, having people find this capacity for this non-discriminative radiance of the heart, goodness of the heart, that's willing to include this very imperfect world, like the uh, imperfection of this mind's conditioning and the imperfection of your mind's conditioning and all the structures of our world, it's imperfect. And if we think it's perfect, we're just setting ourselves up, right, for a sense of betrayal when we finally see that, no, like everything else, it's imperfect. There's some good, there's some bad, because it comes out of the human mind, really, these structures of our lives. 
So metta doesn't depend on things being perfect. It really depends on recognizing this capacity, this capacity of the heart to include. Or you could say, maybe even more usefully say, the absence of aversion. No longer trusting, no longer putting our faith in any expression of aversion, which includes fear, irritation, hatred, impatience, or all the others. Right? And many different expressions of aversion. Here's how the Buddha often taught it. That disciple of the noble ones, thus devoid of greed, devoid of ill will, unbewildered, alert, mindful, keeps pervading the first direction with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, thus above, below, all around, everywhere, in its entirety, one keeps pervading the all-encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will, one discerns before this, before this mind of mind was limited and undeveloped, but now this mind of mind is immeasurable and well-developed. And whatever action was done in a measurable way, by any kind of ordinary emotion or fixation, does not remain there, does not linger there. Because, now these are my words, because now when we're established in the experience of metta, the mind, the heart has immunity. You know, sometimes in the tradition it's said that you can't have ill will in a mind that's established in goodwill. They just don't fit in the same mind. Either the mind is sort of colored, seeing things from the point of view of ill will or goodwill. And you can see this. This is uh, one of the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha. He talked about, and this is just a good technique to know about, he gave five strategies for working with distracting thoughts. And one of them, the first one, after if, when mindfulness isn't stable enough, because that's always our first approach, right? It's just to be aware, oh, it's like this now, this is being known. But when we need a more substantial intervention, because mindfulness isn't liberating the mind, it's, it's kind of getting seduced and struggling, getting lost in thought, then you might try substituting. So if the mind, if the flavor of what the mind is involved with is ill will, aversion, then you might put your mind in the direction of goodwill, of metta, love. So you might not so much have love for the situation that's causing your irritation, but you might change your attention altogether and you might notice that the leaves are coming out of the trees or that there are birds flitting around and just appreciating that life. Or you might remember how your cat crawls under your covers, you know, and spends the day when you're at work, all cozy, right? And that might, like, you might just remember, you know what? I have unconditional kind regard for that cat. You know, I wish that cat no harm, only goodness. And that's a very pure and simple feeling. Or you might 
like uh, Deborah and I uh, shared in the guided metta practice, you know, you might bring a benefactor, somebody who's really been there for you, like a teacher or a mentor or a dear one to mind. And just remember that this heart cares, wishes well for that being. And that gives the mind a little immunity from the gravitational pull of whatever that ill will is about. So you get, you can break it. So when mindfulness doesn't create some space and you've worked with mindfulness a number of times and all you do is get lost and caught for minutes at a time, then you might reflect on loving kindness as a substitute to replace. And the Buddha uses a pretty graphic image of pounding a peg where there's a rotten peg. So you're replacing the rotten peg with a nice solid peg. So you really aim in your mind so that we don't feel, you know, because if we're just constantly dwelling in ill will, and we tried mindfulness, we tried feeling the ouch of the mind of, of the ill will, like, oh, this hurts like this. You know, we tried, it's just ill will. <laughs> All the tricks we've learned from our teachers to bring mindfulness to the direct, immediate experience of ill will. And then we might try substituting goodwill. And then later, because probably whatever that was, will reemerge. But now, and this is really useful about goodwill, we can catch ill will so much sooner when the mind is more often established in goodwill, right? And that simile of the white cloth, you notice when there's a stain right away. Same thing with concentration, why, why um, the Buddha made such a big deal of calming the mind, quieting the mind, stabilizing the mind, because then when something arises to agitate the mind, it's very easy to see it in the first moments when mindfulness can really do its work. It's just that being known. Right? Once it's established, once the mind's been proliferating for a couple minutes, then it's already that reaction, the reactivity of the ill will gets established in the body, right? The body starts to get tight, hot, bothered. The mind's got some momentum. So even if there is a moment of mindfulness, it's just like drowning and coming up above the water, just enough to know that you're drowning. And then you go back under, right? I mean, it's good. It's good to punctuate you know, moments of being lost in aversion with moments of being aware that the mind is caught up in aversion. But it would be better to catch it earlier where you can really, it can, it can be abandoned pretty relatively easily when we catch it. And so what helps is to have metta as a regular visitor to the mind, regularly infusing the mindfulness practice. So it's as if we're moving through the day in our sits and our walking and our eating and our doing our yogi job and the awareness you can check, and it can have the flavor of metta, the softness of metta, the immunity of metta, you know, the sort of stability of metta, the warmth, the interest, curiosity of metta. Venerable Analeo, and I think it's a common simile, uses the image of light. 
And I mentioned already how we use the sun. So metta is sun at noon time, the bright sun. And compassion, karuna is the sun at sunset. has a lot more color. It's more poignant because it's going to go away pretty soon. And mudita, appreciative joy, is the sun at sunrise. Things are fresh, dew, sparkly. Everything's possibilities. And then equanimity is the light of the full moon has a cooler feel to it. Still can, you know, on a clear night, the full moon is quite bright, but it has a more of a quiet, distant quality than the uh, noon sun does. But that image, that simile of the light is also good uh, in terms of sensing the quality of expansion. So, you know, you might, use the categories that we often teach here on retreat and use some of the traditional phrases or your own phrase as a way of rediscovering this capacity of the heart to care. And you might use it for a while and then, but in moments you might feel that there's just naturally a lot of trust, a lot of confidence in the goodness of the heart in that metta right there. So then in those moments, you might find it useful to drop the phrases and drop the particular person even, and just let the actual feeling of metta be the object of meditation. And you're really learning to rest. So you're not trying to force that feeling like, okay, you got a job to do. You have to touch every being (laughs) in each direction, above and below, all around, right? without excluding anyone, including ourselves. And that's like, I would shrink away from that task. So the, another way is just to have confidence that as a light, as a kind of light, its very nature is to expand. And so uh, Venerable uh, Analeo, this uh, German monk, talks about all you're doing is removing the barriers, like there's a curtain and you're just sort of gently drawing that curtain and that curtain and the one behind and the one to the left and above and below. And you're just very skillfully, gently noticing barriers to the radiance of that goodness and just checking, like, is that actually what appears to be a barrier? Is that actually a barrier? And the way you do that is you start to relate to the, what appears to be a barrier with metta. Like, oh, seems like the heart doesn't want to go there. Oh, well, I care about that, right? I care enough to be close. I care enough to include that. And you might begin to notice that whatever felt like a block for love actually can be fuel for the love in a sense, right? And this is the really interesting thing about metta. It has this capacity to turn experience, whatever is arising, whatever sense experience, whatever thought, feeling, it has a way of being able to include it. And the more we meet experience in this wise and kind way, the more confidence the heart has that it can meet the next moment's experience in a kind, and wise way. You've probably heard teachers say that 
the proximate cause for mindfulness is a moment of mindfulness, right? Well, it's true with all of the beautiful, wholesome qualities. What really strengthens the wholesome qualities of the heart and mind is recognizing them, seeing their presence. It builds the momentum. Because in a way, by definition, the wholesome qualities are qualities that are there when the greed, anger, and delusion are weak or falling away. So it's not so much that, as I mentioned earlier, that we do metta, is that we're realizing it. We're realizing that it's there as the aversion fades, the coloring of aversion, that critical mind, that judging mind, that fear-based mind, that mind that's been hurt in the past and so expects to be hurt again, and sort of looking for people who are going to hurt me, you know, expecting bad things to happen to me, right? So as that begins to fade a little bit, then that's what's left. So in a way, metta is more about what's not there than what is there. I mean, even though in a lot of our poetry and our songs, we really make love, even universal love, into a thing, you know, that we want to hold on to or own in some way. But I think it's more useful as a practitioner, as somebody who's really interested in direct directly experiencing, directly investigating their own heart and mind, more see it as something that remains when uh, the ill will and the other defilements, the other hindrances fall away. That's why the using a definition of metta as that quality of mind that can be close, that quality of mind that's capable of being intimate, and unafraid, including, allowing, accepting. That really helps understanding it in that way. So one of the things that uh, Venerable Anayalo says is that we might need to start our practice when we're doing like in the afternoons Uh, practicing metta, right, where we sort of are aiming our mind there. But we go from practicing um, or doing metta to being metta. So when, when we have set something in motion or when we've realized its presence, then the practice is more about trusting it, trusting its radiance, being curious. This is really how Wisdom sort of works with this level or this more refined metta practice, then the wisdom in the mind is curious about what, if anything, seems apparently to be blocking or preventing the metta. What's in the way? So we we practice resting in it, trusting it, being it, and then just notice what's in the way, what seems to be limiting it. And then see if that can be included with that wise, kind presence. Yes, this too. Can this be okay? It's a question I ask myself a lot over the years in practice. 
And I really ask it not as a demanding, like, it should be okay, you should be okay with this, but a real open-ended question, like, can this be okay? I mean, I seem to be struggling, but is that the way it has to be? I wonder. I'd, because I have a lot of confidence in the Buddhist teachings, and, you know, he doesn't say it in this way, but in his own version, says, you know, it's all workable. You know, whatever experience can arise, it's workable. There's a way to meet that experience without reverting to greed, anger, and delusion. I mean, that's the promise that the Buddha's own practice revealed. And then he says, if I can do it, you can do it too. You can open to each moment's experience free from greed, anger, and delusion. So then that really like, well, then what is in the way of meeting this moment in a kindly, loving way? And remember, that doesn't mean weak. A lot of times people associate metta or compassion or appreciative joy, equanimity, these four divine abodes, these places to... Abode is a nice word, right? It really has that flavor of resting and trusting, a place to live, right? That's what an abode is. It's a place to hang out, to spend time, to make our home. And so, uh, yeah, just learning to, to trust that and to be curious what's in the way of that. Is it really in the way? Even the most difficult times, heaviest, most challenging moments, confusing moments. It'd be really great if some thread of confidence were to arise in our mind and basically ask that question, well, can this be okay? Is there an understanding that can include this? Is there a heart, mind that can meet this? difficult moment. Trust. What are we trusting? Well, trusting that things come and go. It's all nature coming and going. And when the mind struggles, when the mind takes it personally, there's suffering there. And so it's interesting how, you know, we, we might think what we want is this, like when, we, when I use a word like immunity, that loving kindness gives us some immunity to ill will because it's, it has a tendency to be stable. It has a tendency to be able to meet what's difficult and care about it, right? That's the compassion. Instead of meet what's difficult and be afraid of it or push it away or want to be distracted from it. So um, it's really good to see how... Um, Metta isn't so much about this fortress that I've defended myself with. And you can see it sometimes when people are imitating being compassionate or imitating being a kind person. It's sort of, it's a view in their mind or it's a stance, like I'm a generous person, I'm a loving person. It's not real and it's kind of fragile, like they're setting themselves up basically when their irritation shows. As opposed to somebody who's 
you know, not afraid. They're not trying to be irritated, but when they get angry or they get irritated, they meet it with compassion and understanding, not hatred. Like, oh, I, I can't let that show because I'm a kind person. But a really kind person is okay about being mean, even though it's not the right way to go. Sometimes it arises, I'm sure you've noticed. And so what kindness does, it understands that sometimes it's like this. Sometimes there's meanness. And I know what to do, right? I include it. Doesn't mean we don't understand that there are consequences for our mean behavior. But it, it's already happened, right? And it's like this. The reverberation, it's like this. So kindness includes, includes the consequences of it understands it. So there's a sense of vulnerability. Metta is being okay with vulnerability. There's a great line, I don't know if people know Reb Anderson, he's a well-known Zen teacher in the country, this country, and um, has written a number of books from the San Francisco Zen Center. And he said something once, I was on retreat with him, or it may have been in one of his books, I forget, but uh, It was something like, uh, an ordinary person feels vulnerable some of the time, but somebody who's well-practiced, they feel vulnerable all of the time. And I really like this, because I I think it says something about loving kindness, in that uh, when the heart, the mind is more and more established in love, then we're not afraid to be vulnerable. We're not afraid to be confused. We're not afraid to be imperfect. So we can actually start meeting these qualities of the mind, these less wholesome qualities of the mind, more honestly with mindfulness. Because it's that metta really gives the mind immunity from having a problem with the world being imperfect or the mind, the conditioned mind being imperfect. Because metta is that quality that knows how to connect. That we're a vulnerable human being, right? That it isn't easy being a human being, having a conditioned mind where we can't count on what's going to happen next. Thich Nhat Hanh has this great line that just conveys the spirit of metta, I think. At least for some people, for me, it does. He would say, Darling, I'm here for you. Isn't that nice? You can use that in your practice, right? That's not a bad phrase to have at the ready. Darling, I'm here for you. So irritation or pain, knee pain comes. You know, to to find that thread of goodness in the heart that can actually honestly say, Darling, I'm here for you. Yes, this too. This too, right? Sometimes the knee hurts. Sometimes doubt arises. Sometimes we don't, we forget why we came, (laughs) right? Don't want to be here. And there's like, is there something in the heart and mind that can say yes to that? Yeah, sometimes it's like this. You get to be here too. You get to belong. There are all these stories about spiritual communities, you know, and how there's seems to be a couple people that are like grist for the mill, 
and uh, meaning they irritate people. But the difference, hopefully, if it's a real spiritual community, is that the community, everybody understands that everybody belongs. And we don't need to know why or how they belong. It's like we, you know, we have, at least to some degree, this sense in our families, like, well, they're my brother, or this person's my brother, this person's my sister. They belong. You know, they get to be included because they're my brother, they're my sister. Now, why that limitation? You know, it's like we say that about Americans. Well, they're Americans, so they fit under the law of the land, you know. But if you're not an American citizen, well, I'm sorry. I mean, these boundaries just don't make sense. And this is what metta really shows up, like Boundaries don't make sense. And not even just among humans, but about, around, about other species too. And this is this thing about vulnerability. It's like the more we train our mind to be established in love, a lot of the artificial boundaries that we've just taken for granted stop making sense. And then, like it or not, a lot of the way we live stops making sense. A lot of the ways, choices we make start to be challenged. And this is a, not an uncommon experience for people who have entered this path and have been sincere. It's like we become more sensitive, more aware of how many, how many sort of assumptions we've sort of been living by that just don't make sense from the point of view of wisdom and love. And we have to find new ways of living and we have to be really patient with how difficult that can be. Some of it could be really difficult because it's going against the stream, the cultural stream. Whether it's about food choices or about entertainment choices or how you like to spend your vacations, <laughs> coming to IMS, sitting in silence with other people and having to explain what you've done. <laughs> Skillfully, hopefully. <laughs> but we trust, right? We're, we're trusting what mindfulness reveals and we're trusting with what metta reveals. That's our refuge, right? Whatever gets clarified. And this is also true with old uh, um, lawsuits, you know, not the real lawsuit, but where we've thrown people out of our hearts because they've been bad to us, they were mean to us, they betrayed us, and we have every right to keep them out of our heart. But then as your practice develops, at some point it may not make sense to keep them out of your heart. And it may not mean you actually talk to the person, they may not even be alive anymore. It just means hatred doesn't make sense. Ill will doesn't make sense, resentment doesn't make sense, it just doesn't make sense anymore. And so what you do about that, that's going to be very specific to each situation. But what is universal is the heart no longer trusts ill will, which means it no longer trusts boundaries, ways that we separate ourselves from other beings or really from everything, anything. Because it doesn't align with our actual experience more and more. So it isn't an idealistic thing that we're trying to do. Oh yeah, 
we're all one, so I should start acting like we're all one. It's not that. It's not an intellectual thing. So we don't have to force it, which is really nice, because it would get really stinky if we tried to force it, you know, and try to, like, we created a committee to figure out, like, (laughs) if we're all one, how should we act? You know, and then, you know, have a bunch of decrees, edicts about how we should act because we're all one. You can just imagine how crazy that would be. But instead, it's like we're just trusting the natural movement of the heart as wisdom and love deepens, refines. And then we, mostly what we do is we notice that things are changing. Often later, like, oh, this is not how I used to relate to mom, you know, like to be really patient with her. Or, you know, this is not how I used to relate to people who let their dogs poop on the sidewalk and don't clean it up. (laughs) Or to people driving and texting, you know. Now I have a lot of compassion. I still keep my distance. I might even call the police. But I don't throw them out of my heart. Right? That was the line, some of you know Ram Das, um, who really influenced a lot of us um, and uh, just had a real impact on Buddhism and just these uh, teachings from the East coming to the West. And uh, his teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, a well-known Indian saint, told him when he had to go back to the States after being in India for a while, and he was brokenhearted to leave his teacher. And his, his teacher left him with this really simple instruction, never throw anybody out of your heart. Isn't that simple and very to the point? This is a couple stanzas from a poem by Mark. I'm not sure if it's Nepo or Nepo. My efforts now turn from trying to outrun suffering to accepting love wherever I can find it. Stripped of causes and plans and things to strive for, I have discovered everything I could need or ask for is right here in flawed abundance. We cannot eliminate hunger, but we can feed each other. We cannot eliminate loneliness, but we can hold each other. We cannot eliminate pain, but we can live a life of compassion. Ultimately, we are small living things awakened in the stream, not gods who carve out rivers. Like human fish, we are asked to experience meaning in the life that moves through the gill of our heart. There's nothing to do and nowhere to go. Accepting this, we can do everything and go everywhere. So just as a a summary to give us some clues as we live our days here on retreat together. And you can just be on the lookout for metta as something that's 
uh, has this non-discriminating quality. Right? So it, it moves out. But remember, it's going to be subtle. And so you're not going to notice it if you're trying to be loving. So like that um, experience I mentioned, you know, let's say you've been, you've brought an easy person to mind and you've even used some phrases and you've really tried to connect with the meaning of the phrase and you've sort of been really steady. And then you might just check. And then when you check, you might notice, well, there's nothing happening. I remember that song from a chorus line. I was feeling nothing, something like that. You know, this person in an acting class, and she's supposed to sort of find some emotion, but felt nothing. And that can be how it is for us. We sort of look, and we've heard stories of radiant hearts beaming love in all directions, and we're feeling nothing. But it may be useful not to rush back to the image of the person or to the phrase, but just to be okay with that feeling of nothing. Just notice it. Notice the quietness of that nothing. And maybe tune into the emptiness. So when I say emptiness, I mean the absence of ill will. Right? So that kind of neutral feeling may actually be something. It may be the absence of ill will. So in this heart, there is no affliction of ill will right now. And see, if you look at it in that way, then you might be able to, for a few moments or even longer, just reside or abide in the experience of non-aversion, the heart that's not pushing anything away, the heart that doesn't have a problem with anything. And then the next would be just to notice that that quality doesn't actually, isn't inherently bounded. Right? I mean, that doesn't mean we don't construct boundaries, but when we look at the feeling as an actual experience here, right in the middle of the body-mind, right here, you see that it, it doesn't have boundaries. So then just notice, it's in a way it's not so different initially than noticing the feeling of space, because you're really noticing the absence than the presence. And it's really important because we have to cut through a lot of our idealistic programming we have about kindness and love and compassion. You know, we have a, a lot of packaging just from our culture about what it should be. And so be ready, like, is this the heart that can include, that allows, that isn't contentious with anything, isn't having a problem with anything. Ah, maybe this is what the Buddha meant by metta. And then you could repeat the passage that the Buddha used. Ah, and we chant this at Common Ground at the center in Minneapolis a lot. It's common, I'm sure many of you have heard this. I gave one translation, but the more common translation in the West is, I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And you could do compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity. Likewise, the second, the third, the fourth, above and below, all around, everywhere, and to all as to myself. 
I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with this mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, immeasurable, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. So you can even use a phrase, like a traditional phrase like that, or one of the traditional metta phrases that you've been using, may all beings be at ease, may all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Just as a supporting, uh, it's like a frame to help the mind rest there, to help clarify that there is this, this abundant quality, this boundless quality that doesn't have a problem with anything. That's really the flavor of metta, the not having a problem, what we call acceptance. So I'll just end with another poem, one of our self-proclaimed Buddhist poets, quite wonderful poet, Jane Hirschfeld. It's called Light Prayer. You might have heard this before. It's made the circles. It goes like this. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. It goes out to every one equally. Circulating, circling rabbit and hawk. Look in the iron bucket, a single nail, a single ruby, all the heavens and hells. They rattle in the heart and make this and make one sound. So let's just rest in the quality of loving kindness for a few moments together. Trust the goodness of the heart that is able to meet whatever's showing up for you now. Thanks for your attention. Sort of walking time now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.